4: Visit LiveNation.com slash to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 seconds from Mars. Oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
5: All right, Adrian. We're at the corner of 77th and Columbus, staring at a storefront. <laughs> And I've brought you here because I know you were on the scene in Brooklyn circa 2007-2008, is that correct?
1: Uh yeah, that's correct. I...
5: I'm in New York with Adrian Anderson, the ultimate Brooklyn food maven. Adrian has been working with chefs and food media around New York for years, both making the food and making it look beautiful.
1: I was just getting out of restaurants and starting to work as a food stylist. I was maybe still living in Williamsburg, maybe Bushwick around that time.
5: That's what I was hoping for. This Adrian co-owned the studio where all the food magazines shop, and she did a lot of the styling. So when I wanted someone to walk me through the ultimate cautionary tale in the world of craft chocolate, a tale that has a lot to do with the looks and appearances of a bygone Brooklyn era, I knew who'd ask.
1: I feel like we were at the beginning, or kind of the early stages of farm-to-table, and I think that we were still in this era of discovery and excitement about sourcing, and honesty, and authenticity in food.
5: And in, in that, like, budding good future suddenly appears a new chopper maker, right in Williamsburg, the Mass Brothers. Yeah. Do you remember when they first came onto your radar?
1: I can't pinpoint the exact moment. It was more of a sort of a creeping light leak at the periphery of your consciousness. Stores that had the cool food at the time started carrying Mast, And it was really noticeable because the design of the wrappers was so good.
5: It really was. Every bar looked like it was wrapped in beautiful, old-fashioned wallpaper with minimal words. In an era when most chocolate bars were still heavy on the bling, these bars seemed handmade and real, and the food world gobbled them up.
6: How do you make absolutely incredible Valentine's Day chocolate? Well, here at the Mast Brothers Chocolate Factory, they start with organic cacao beans.
4: The Mast Brothers, it's very artsy, fancy.
5: Just as important as that artsy packaging of the bars was the packaging of the brothers themselves. Rick and Michael Mast, two young guys with bushy red beards and Victorian clothing slinging burlap sacks of cacao beans for the eager cameras.
3: We're at Mass Brothers Chocolate in Brooklyn. Rick, your place is a chocolate nirvana, basically. I love it. What makes you guys so different? about
7: making chocolate from scratch all in-house. We're bringing in beans from all around the world. All over the world, right? So like Brooklyn itself, it's a chocolate bar that's made up of things from all around the world. So today we're going to show you how we make our Brooklyn blend. I'd love to show it to you. The aesthetic
1: was ubiquitous at the time. It was inescapable if you were, uh, yeah, the the bearded Brooklyn bro uh, selling selling cheese or uh, slinging cocktails.
5: Suddenly, the masks had fawning coverage in the New York Times and Bon Appetit, new shops in London and L.A., and a global spotlight as America's breakout craft chocolate maker. Their glass-walled Williamsburg factory, where you could watch real live hipsters making chocolate, became a tourist mecca.
1: But there was a story. There was that big story. I'm sure you know what it was. I don't, Do I don't remember. Oh, yes.
5: That's why
2: I'm here.
0: Some people in the food world, the chocolate world, are calling them frauds. It's the <laughs> Milli Vanilli of chocolate, which is a very strong thing to say.
6: They were remelting other kinds of chocolate into their chocolate bars, especially in the early days when they were claiming they were bean to bar. Chocolate alloys.
5: That's which right. is going against the purity, the nature of the very earnest looks in the big beards, essentially. In 2015, a blogger for the website DallasFood.org broke the story that would bring the Mass Brothers down. During their rise to fame, when they were the poster beards for authenticity, they weren't actually making some of their own chocolate. They were buying it from other companies, melting it down, pouring it into their own molds, then wrapping it up in old timey paper. At first, the masks denied everything, but eventually they were forced to acknowledge that in their early years, they'd been remelters. They claimed they'd gone straight long ago, but the damage was done. The shops disappeared, the factory shuttered, and the masks themselves faded away.
1: That felt like the end. After that, like the exposé had come out, uh, they had been mocked relentlessly. Everything closed down. It just—it felt like it was officially over.
5: And so we all thought. But now, here we are. Uh, look up at the storefront and tell me what you see.
1: <laughs> I see that we've got a hand-painted window that says Mast Market, established 2021. And there's a bunch of people inside. It looks like the 2011 Brooklyn aesthetic is alive and well.
5: Yes, the masts are back. Selling chocolate and coffee and housewares and body soaps? In a squeaky clean space that could double as a Williams Sonoma. The remelters have reformed. But don't be too quick to blame the masts. Remelting, style over substance, for all the controversy, in the world of big chocolate, that's just business as usual. But to understand just how bad it gets, we're gonna have to head into the belly of the beast. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart podcasts, This is Obsessions Wild Chocolate. I'm Rowan Jacobson. Chapter 4, Big Bad Chocolate.
7: let's turn to... Okay, so here we are in Whole Foods. Here we are in Whole Foods. Whole Foods, Brooklyn, right? Whole Foods, near The foodiest place on uh, the the planet. One of them.
5: Um, (laughs) um, I'm with Clay Gordon, the creator and moderator of thechocolatelife.com, which is the world's biggest online community for chocolate fans. Clay teaches chocolate appreciation classes. He consults with chocolate companies. He wrote a great guide to chocolate. And he was on the scene when the Masts had their big run.
7: We all wanted them to succeed, right? Because they were um, bringing people from
5: bad chocolate to, from cheap chocolate. Industrial chocolate
7: into craft chocolate. And um, they were the people who were the gateway. People came to them, right? And they were the introduction.
5: This was during that strange stretch of the 2000s when chocolate suddenly became virtuous. Instead of a guilty treat, it pivoted into a worldly, earnest, possibly even healthy luxury. The candy aisles exploded with snazzy bars advertising their high cacao percentage, socially responsible business practices, and exotic cacao sources. Of course, the first chocolate makers to do such bars really were tiny operations that walked the walk. But it didn't take long before they were joined in the virtuous section by Big Chocolate, the handful of giant corporations that dominate the chocolate business. But to look at the shelves in Whole Foods, You'd never know it.
7: It's really, really hard to understand what it is we have presented here. So, for example, there's a brand called Lily's. Mm-hmm. So Lily's is known for sugar-free chocolate. When most people look at a bar of Lily's, they'll go, ooh, it's fair trade. Right. right. The other thing that's in, in really important to know is that the corporate parent of Lily's is Hershey. Hershey? The Hershey Company. Yes, Lily's is owned by Hershey, and it should be known that Hershey is a named defendant in a lawsuit having to do with um, knowingly profiting from illegal labor in West Africa.
5: Chocolate, as you may or may not know, has some serious issues. U.S. Senators Sherrod Brown
3: and Ron Wyden arguing that there is evidence the Ivory Coast relies on forced
1: child labor
4: to harvest cocoa.
1: Instead of attending school, these children sought through cocoa beans on a plantation. The Washington Post reported in June that more
5: than two million children were engaged in the practice on West African cocoa farms. The big chocolate companies don't actually own cacao farms. They are many links away. At the other end of the supply chain. And this makes it difficult to tell where the cocoa originated. So their argument is that, hey, we're just buying these beans
7: from Cargill or whoever. Yeah, right. But the reality so, well, is they do know. They've got a pretty darn Well, good they idea. have accepted responsibility, many of them, by signing the Hurricane Engel Protocol. They know that these are issues.
5: Um, in the 1990s, a wave of news stories exposed the shocking amount of child trafficking and slavery in the chocolate trade. In 2001, the US Congress responded led by Senator Tom Harkin and Representative Elliot Engel. Together, they introduced the idea of slapping a label on chocolate products, indicating whether or not the product was free of child slave labor.
7: We need a better commitment, a stronger commitment from the chocolate industry worldwide.
5: That's Tom Harkin.
7: Families need to know that when they buy chocolate in whatever form, that a lot of that's being produced by what is really, in essence, child slavery.
5: To no one's surprise, the industry freaked out. Chocolate is a $100 billion business, and a child slavery logo splashed across every candy bar wouldn't exactly be great for sales.
7: Big Chocolate said, you know what? We don't need you to enact laws. We will take care of it ourselves, the problem ourselves. And every time their self-imposed deadline approached, they kick the cocoa pod down the road another five years.
5: In 2005, Big Chocolate promised to get child labor out of the supply chain by 2010. In 2010, they said they could do it by 2020. In 2020, they said that they couldn't even trace where most of their cacao comes from. The problem is that cacao is a commodity bought and sold by the shipload by traders in New York and London, then stored in giant warehouses until some company buys it. Between the farmer who grows it and the chocolate bar on the supermarket shelf, it can change hands a dozen times. It's nearly impossible to trace that path. Not that some companies aren't trying.
7: All right, so now you're pulling a Tony's Chocolonely bar. Pulling Tony's Chocolonely. Um, they sold over 100 million dollars in chocolate last year. Wow, great. Right.
5: Tony's is a Dutch company founded 20 years ago with a singular mission to eradicate slavery from the chocolate supply chain. Tony's groovy peace and love packaging gives them this Ben and Jerry's vibe, but there's a key difference.
7: So Tony's is not a chocolate maker, Tony's is a marketing company. Right. They produce chocolate bars from chocolate which is manufactured by someone else. Mm-hmm. So the chocolate is manufactured for them by Barry Callebaut, biggest, biggest ch- chocolate, chocolate company in the, in the world.
5: That's exactly. Barry Callebaut, the Goliath of chocolate makers, with more than 60 production facilities around the globe and eight billion dollars in annual sales. To their credit, Tony's purchases all their beans from seven cooperatives in West Africa that they ensure are free of slave labor. And they pay a premium to do that. But the fact that the largest chocolate maker in the world is making all of their chocolate for them makes things
7: complicated. The cocoa butter for this bar is probably produced in the Calibut factory in West Africa.
5: And why is that a problem? Well...
7: Callebaut is one of the named defendants in the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act lawsuit. And so, can we say that they're actually working to eradicate slavery in the entire chocolate supply chain?
5: They're trying, for sure. But, due to its ties to Barry Callebaut, Tony's was removed from an important list of slave-free chocolate companies. And Tony's isn't the only indie brand with ties to big chocolate. Clay picked up another bar, one I had some history with. Choco Love. These guys have forever. been around forever. Right? Yeah. So this they, was, That was like the first yep. serious dark chocolate right. I started buying in like the 1990s.
7: Okay. Part of this is looking at labels. So when you buy Choco products, you can be sure your purchase supports a better future for cocoa farmers and their families. So Choco Love, 100% Barry Callebaut. Really? Chocolate. Them too? Yes. I didn't know that. And so what they're doing is this claim about sustainable, social, and ethical mm-hmm. is based entirely on what... Barry Callebaut is claiming that they're (laughs) doing on the farm. So they go to Barry Callebaut, they're like, you're sustainable and ethical, right? Right. Okay, good. He kept going. Other brands that you might see, Justin's. Yeah, for sure. Justin's also getting a lot of penetration. Hormel? Owned by Hormel Foods. Wow. The Endangered Species Chocolate Company, they don't make chocolate. They're a marketing company. The chocolate is made for them by another company. Does
5: anybody on the shelf make their own chocolate?
7: I believe, well,
5: I believe, well, Theo. In Seattle. They're the only ones. By the time Clay had gone through the whole shelf, it was clear that what the Mass Brothers had done was just standard practice in the weird world of chocolate. And Clay says the chicanery goes all the way to the top.
7: It's important to know that um, Hershey does not manufacture chocolate. At all? At all anymore. They're a candy company, not a chocolate company. And yeah. so the chocolate for them, if you go to, if you actually go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, yeah. you will not find chocolate manufacturing anymore. Um, they buy their chocolate in from big producers, Cargill companies like that, big producers. Um, so when all, you go to Hershey Park and you're like, yep, they're not tra- in, they're not making chocolate themselves.
5: If this makes you want to break free from the chocolate empire completely, you're not alone.
0: I just felt inherently like there was just something really messed up with the system itself.
5: But don't. Join the resistance instead.
0: And I wanted to build an alternative system.
5: Ride shotgun with a rebel commander on a risky mission after the break. Hey everyone, want a taste of some real wild chocolate? Delicious, nutritious, and 100% free of preservatives or moral conundrums. We got you covered. Kaleidoscope has joined forces with Louisa Abram and Stetler Chocolate to make a special box to go along with this very podcast. Now you can sample flavors from the banks of the Amazon without having to fight off jaguars and anacondas. Just visit www.stetler-chocolate.com to order your wild chocolate today.
3: Enroll today at TrinitySchool.org. That's TrinitySchool.org.
4: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Sarah McLaughlin.
5: So what's the lifespan on one of these trucks doing doing this kind of work? you manage managed to keep it going? <laughs> Infinity. Infinity with the right mechanic. I'm with Emily Stone and Diane Coy. Emily is the founder of Uncommon Cacao, which acts as a matchmaker for 5,000 small farmers in 12 countries and hundreds of bean-to-bar chocolate makers in the U.S. and Europe. Diane is the new managing director of the Belize business. She's a Kekchi Maya who grew up in the area and spent time as a kid harvesting cacao with her parents. We're riding in a rusty 33-year-old Ford F-250 through the back roads of Belize, buying cacao from farmers. So everything we're seeing is, my, is part of the Maya mountains? Or?
0: Yeah, everything here. This is sort of the southern tip, and then it extends up towards Cayo.
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. really beautiful.
0: How many communities are we sourcing cacao from now, Um 28,
1: 28 communities in the Maya mountains.
5: In the late 2000s, Emily was living in Boston, working on the campaign to pressure Hershey to address its child slavery problem. But the more she watched Big Chocolate say all the right things, the more she realized the system was never going to change from within.
0: There's no reason for chocolate to be causing poverty. Um, It is the leftover inheritance of colonialism and of a world in which slavery was legal.
5: So Emily decided to help build a new system. Her vision was to act as a matchmaker for small farmers and bean-to-bar chocolate makers, to cut out those 12 layers of intermediaries and deliver more money to the farmers and better beans to the chocolate makers. And she knew the place to start was the Americas, which had the old varieties of cacao that the high-end chocolate community craved, and no system for getting it to market in good condition. In 2010, she moved to Belize and started talking to farmers. They told her they needed an easier way to sell their beans and a better price. She said, got it. So she bought a beat up truck and offered to pick up their beans right at the farm. Then she built a professional fermentation station, which would help her charge more for these improved beans. Within a few years, farmers were getting twice the price for their cacao and Maya Mountain beans had become famous. But Belize alone was a drop in the bucket. If she really wanted to build a more just chocolate industry, she needed to expand. And she knew where to go.
0: I was hearing from people in Belize, you know, oh, yeah, my cousin's in Guatemala. They have cacao. Like, have you ever been to Guatemala? And I had it. I go over there and then I get the bus and, you know, it was just kind of like asking around, like, okay, how do I get from here to here? Anytime I got to the next bus station and everyone's looking at me like. Who the F are you? Someone, like, asked me. They were like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to look at cacao. And all of a sudden, they all were like, cacao? I was like, yeah, they've got, we have a lot of cacao. I was like, oh, great. That's what I'm here for. And literally, as the minibus was, like, making its way up the mountain, we were stopping at every single person on the bus's cacao farm and getting out to, like, admire
5: the Soon she's meeting everyone in the community, and learning how important they were to the history of chocolate. They were Kekchi Maya, direct descendants of the people who had introduced chocolate to Europe when they sent a friendly delegation to the Spanish court in 1544, bearing beans from these very hillsides. Emily had stumbled into the heart of chocolate, an unbroken lineage going back thousands of years. But that didn't make their situation any easier.
0: Their uh, market were um, coyotes. Which are basically intermediaries that drive around these back roads with a stack of cash and a handgun and they buy, and a scale, and they buy whatever the farmers have to sell, whether that's corn, beans, cardamom, chili, cinnamon, cacao, allspice. Um, there's no transparency around where that cacao is going, there's no technical assistance, and um, there's no fermentation. It's all washed cacao. So, yeah, these producers were left without a market.
5: This was her dream scenario. The cacao varieties turned out to be excellent old ones, but the cacao wasn't being fermented at all. The farmers were just washing the pulp off as soon as they opened the pods, drying the beans, and selling them as fast as possible. The delicious flavors that emerged with fermentation were never being given a chance to develop. And it was all due to the dysfunctional market. The coyotes were going to pay the same super low price no matter what. So Emily jumped on the opportunity. She moved to Guatemala taught the farmers how to ferment and dry properly, bought the cacao for twice the going rate, and sold it directly to her growing list of bean-to-bar clients. But the Coyotes did not take this lying down.
0: It's been a huge challenge for them locally. I mean, it's been, there have been security issues, there have been, so it has.
5: What, what kind of challenge, like, what, what kind of challenge or what kind of security issue?
0: Um, like, there were physical threats made to association members.
5: The battle with the coyotes came to a head after the government arranged to build a new fermentation and drying center for the Farmers Association. Emily wasn't directly involved, but she'd promised to buy the cacao, which was a key to the deal. But one local coyote was particularly unhappy about losing his turf. And when the government representatives came to sign the paperwork, they met a most unwelcome welcoming committee.
0: Basically this like disgruntled guy and his family surrounded the building where the signing was happening armed with machetes and threatened that if they signed it, like there would be violence. And so they left without signing and the project never happened.
5: The bad blood continued for a couple of years and the farmers warned Emily and her team not to visit.
0: The um, coyote and sort of his family members were like, you know, if those people come, it's it's not gonna be good.
5: But the fermentation center got built in the neighboring community. And once it became clear to all the farmers how much better the new system was, they made it very clear to the coyote that the times, they were changing
0: We have found that over time, there's, there is a circle of trust and security that is established by the farmers themselves and that the consequences for anyone who interferes will be high.
5: Since then, Guatemala has become a prized source of cacao in the craft chocolate world. But that doesn't mean it's an easy business.
0: Bullets, razors, Bullets. nails, <laughs> cement, you name it, it's been found in a cacao bag.
5: And sometimes Emily finds herself thinking more like Walter White than Willy Wonka.
0: So I, I don't like guns. And I've never wanted us to have a gun. To me, the idea of having a gun owned by the company, out in the company vehicle, someone from the company, you know, having the ability to use a gun is terrifying. Um,
5: But Guatemala is one of the poorest and most dangerous countries in the world. And a shipping container of cacao cacao is worth tens of thousands of
0: dollars. Um, There have been instances of coffee containers being robbed, um, you know, violently in Guatemala. And so obviously we want to ensure that um, our cacao does not get stolen on its way to the port for export. Uh, so yeah, we've got we've always got guys with guns following our containers.
5: I hope by now it's abundantly clear that making great chocolate from responsibly sourced beans is really, really hard. Even when you're not dealing with guns and charlatans, sometimes you could do everything right and still fail.
9: I thought this was gonna taste amazing. And this was like gonna be like the the gold of the forest.
5: Just ask Luisa Abram, the young Brazilian chocolate maker who began working with the Santo Daime ayahuasca cult in the Amazon. Luisa fell in love with the people. She paid fair prices for their cacao. She did everything right.
9: Yeah, it ended up being so crappy. (laughs) It was just horrible
5: what to do when you've just made the worst chocolate in the world. After the break.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
9: I, I had fallen in love with all the story, with all, like, the, the... Like, it's so poetic, like, crossing Brazil to go to the forest, go deep into the forest to get the wild cacao sauvage, um, and, and then to bring it back and to make chocolate. It was just so enchanting for me.
5: After meeting the Santo Daime cacao collectors on the Perus River, Louisa Abram devoted herself to baking chocolate with the wild cacao of the Amazon.
9: I want to do something with purpose. I want to impact others' lives. I want to, like, believe my mark on this earth.
5: (laughs) So she and her dad bought 20 kilos of cacao from the co-op, stuffed it into their extra luggage, and headed back to Sao Paulo. She built a micro-chocolate factory in her parents' utility closet. And she roasted the beans in her tiny oven and blew off the shells with a hairdryer and ground them into a silky paste in her mini roller and made her very first batch of wild Brazilian chocolate. And when it had cooled, she lifted a piece in her hand, placed it on her tongue, closed her eyes, and let the essence of the Amazon wash over her. And...
9: Everything tasted so awful. For me, it, it was just so funky taste, so like ammonia and, and so like unnatural. <laughs>
5: She ran it by some others to make sure it wasn't just her.
9: I gave it to my chefs and to my colleagues to to try, and they were, like, mocking of me, like, you went all the way to Acre to get this piece of, you know, like...
5: <laughs> Naturally, Luisa assumed that she was
6: the problem.
9: And I was like, okay, maybe I am the one doing it, doing something different, so I changed the roasting profile. I changed, like, the, the, the how I was... I changed, even even my sugar I changed. <laughs> I changed everything and nothing would work.
5: For the next three years, she kept making chocolate with the Perouse beans because she was determined to make it work, but she just couldn't get the taste right. And while she managed to get the chocolate into stores around Brazil, on the strength of the Wild Cacao's origin story, nobody ever reordered. So what do you do when you put everything on the line to become a great chocolate maker and you find yourself making terrible chocolate? Well, you need a guru. Someone who combines deep expertise with almost spiritual insight. So Louisa summoned up her courage and sent a bar to our old friend, Mark Christian.
2: It it was a, um, a qualified disaster. We don't need to get into all the particular details of flaws, they were manifold, you know?
5: Yep, her bar sucked and he told her so. But hang on, there was a shiny silver lining.
2: You can see through the beans. Right, no matter how how poorly they're prepped, whatever their post-harvest is and so forth, the DNA, the backbone of those seeds is still there. And what struck me about that cacao and that bar she made, it was good enough that I thought this was the ultimate dark milk chocolate, potentially, without any dairy whatsoever. That's how much it was cream puffing the oral chamber.
5: Sorry, if you've never had your oral chamber cream puffed, you might not be familiar with the experience. But in the world of chocolate, or at least the world of Mark Christian, that's a good thing.
2: Um, All, all that, that, you know, earthen milk, dairy, cream. And who doesn't like cream? I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> Everybody likes cream. Everybody likes mama, right? right? So it was great, but it was masked. I mean, you, you, had, you could get the cream, but you were getting a, a lot of other detritus with it. Like what? You were getting the basics, such as um, cardboard, chalk, maybe even the blackboard itself <laughs> it was thrown in on it. I mean, it was all there. In other
5: words, it's not you. And it's not your beans either. They seem kind of great. But what's up with that fermentation?
2: I told them, there's something there in that valley. You know, don't let it go. You know, Let's get this right.
5: Mark's recommendation was fix that fermentation. Get rid of all that funky ammonia. And you might have something really special on your hands. So how do you fix that? Well, remember Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction? The cleaner?
9: I'm Winston Wolf, I solve problems.
6: You need that guy for cacao. It's funny, I almost feel guilty for showing up and being like, seriously, this is what you guys do? And he exists. Dan O'Darty lives in Hawaii, but he spends
5: most of his time zipping around the planet, saving cacao farmers from their own mistakes. Mark told Louisa that Dan could make her problems go away. So Louisa invited Dan to her factory and showed him
6: the Peruse beans. Right away from the aroma, but also the very dark, almost blackened color, I knew that there were problems. I mean, over fermented cacao has this funky, you know, barnyardy. Um, I mean, I describe it as, you know, somewhat manure. You know, like 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 cow manure smells. Um, I mean, it tastes rotten. So he started with some questions. How often do you harvest the trees? What level of ripeness do you select? What is the lag time between cutting a fruit from the tree, opening it? Is there a delay between opening it and putting it into a box to ferment? How often do you turn it? How long do you ferment it? And how do you dry it? And, and there's even more sub-steps. And in Peruse, the answer to pretty much every one of those questions was wrong. These boats, are going up and down the river and collecting whole pods. Some guys would take their pods, collect them in the forest, and put them out in the riverbanks. And they would just roast in the sun. Not good. Basically, it was all a mess. The
5: ayahuasca cult was picking overripe pods, and then they were waiting too long to open the pods. And then
6: they were over-fermenting the seeds. And Dan had to break the news to them. You know, you have to... Be gentle when you tell people, I mean, essentially, what you've been doing all this time is wrong. Uh, We're going to change pretty much every step. Every step. Pick the pods earlier.
5: Open them right away. Get those beans in the fermentation boxes. Unplug the holes in the bottoms of the boxes so they can drain. Turn the piles every day. Keep them covered with banana leaves. But they did it all. And when the new beans were ready, Louisa tried not to get her hopes up. She just made her chocolate, like always. Then...
9: I I remember when I first put the chocolate in my mouth, it was like, it was like a drug.
6: (laughs) Oh, it was amazing. I mean, it has like straight up dried blueberry notes. Like I had people taste it that didn't, I didn't prime them with anything. And they were like, oh my God, it, it tastes like you round dried blueberries into it. Finally, Louisa had a fantastic
5: new chocolate on her hands and her company took off. She added three other chocolates to her line, each coming from a different Amazonian community with its own wild cacao trees. And as it turned out, she had dialed in her skills just in time because the kind of opportunity every bean bar chocolate maker dreams of was about to come her way. And it was going to take everything she had to pull it off. Next week on Obsessions, Wild Chocolate. Man, you must have been furious at a lot of people.
9: Uh, I had a little, uh, it was a section of rage, And you now pure rage. I, I would, you know, with a gun in my hand, I would have killed some people, maybe. Yeah.
5: Volker Lehman. After years of dodging bullet after bullet in the jungle, he was about to take one right in the heart. Wild Chocolate is a Kaleidoscope production with iHeart Podcasts. Hosted and reported by me, Rowan Jacobson, and produced by Shane McKeon at Nice Marmot Media. Edited by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakudor. Sound design and mixing by Soundboard. Original music composition by Spencer Stevenson, a.k.a. Botan. Production help from Bahini Shori. From iHeart, our executive producers are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Kostas Linos, Oz Wallaceon, Aaron Kaufman, Will Pearson, Codelburn, Byrne, Bob Pittman, Daria Daniel, and the team at Stetler who are helping us make a very special chocolate of our own. That's right. We're working with Louisa and others to protect the rainforest and make delicious Amazonian chocolate. Visit www.stetler-chocolate.com to taste it for yourself. That's www.stetler-chocolate.com if you want to hear more of this type of content, nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. Please spread the love
2: wherever you listen.